The waters of calamity flow deep. They break in death and ruin, and they sweep along the wrecks of the wrath of God in their tumultuous foam. A few lines from The Persians, a play by the Greek playwright Aeschylus. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton and this is the 19th episode of a second series of podcasts about the history of the Western world. The first series was called The Ancient World and it covered everything from the beginning of time to the rise of the Persian Empire. The second series is called The Greek Sun. The episodes in this series address events and the great men and women of ancient Greek history. So far, we have watched Greek history unfold from its murky beginnings in the late Bronze Age all the way through the Persian War and the rise of the Athenian Empire. Today, I want to pause the chronological march through history and to begin to explore the cultural explosion that was Athens in the 5th century BC. I call this series the Greek Sun for a reason. Ancient Greece would do more than simply add some dates and the names of battles and some kings and queens to a list in a history textbook. Here, especially in the 5th and 4th centuries BC, the Greeks would bring forth advances not only in military and naval technology and tactics, but also make important developments in math and science, and with its literature and its philosophy, put forth important questions about human identity and purpose. And as you will see, these are questions which we have still not answered. Greek drama in particular would blossom during this time, and the texts that remain to us from this period demonstrate stage work that is surprisingly relatable, and from which we can draw a straight line to the dramatic techniques and dialogue used in the early modern period in the plays of Shakespeare in England, of Molière in France, de la Barca in Spain, and from these even to modern dramatic presentations that we see on film and television today. Now, before I delve into the Greek playwrights of this period, let me remind you to visit the website for this podcast at western-traditions.org. You can find all the episodes there, as well as some helpful pictures and maps, and along with some recommended reads and source lists for the episodes, you can also support the podcast by purchasing Western Traditions merchandise on the shopping page, or you can contribute directly through the PayPal or Patreon options. But for now, though, let's learn about how Greek drama rose and developed in classical Greece. In 16th century England and after, stage dramas were a culturally delicate matter. Many people, of course, straightforwardly enjoyed this medium of entertainment. The romance, the action, the philosophical but very relatable monologues, such as those found in Shakespeare's Hamlet, these all resonated strongly with the populace of Elizabethan England at all levels, from the poor to the wealthy, the commoners and the nobility. Yet, there was something about the theater that troubled a particular sect of society in England at this time, a portion of the populace that adhered to a growingly popular form of religious expression known as Puritanism, a religious movement with strong historical ties to modern-day Christian evangelicalism. For Puritans, the stage play was highly suspect. The presentation of a play was, of course, often a setting for public immorality, a lot of people making light of sinful behavior and, often enough, indulging in said misbehavior in the unruly crowd as they watched. But there was something else that bothered the staunchly anti-Catholic Puritans. 
The stage play, you see, resembled to some degree the Catholic Mass, which in the 16th century, and the century that followed, the Puritans were desperate for the general populace of England to forget about. <clears throat> Learning about this motive for distrust in the theater sometimes surprises modern students of English literature. They may even disbelieve it. It seems absurd, perhaps, that the Puritans would make such a connection between the entertainment of a play and a religious ritual. However, the Puritans were not wrong. Not at all. The very idea of a play is a religious one at its heart. When I come to the eighth series in this podcast about contemporary times, God willing, some ten years from now or more, I will get into the way that modern entertainment mediums, such as radio and film and even humble podcasts like this one, have taken the place of religion in the hearts of modern people, who have not at all become less religious. No, modern people have really only changed religions without knowing it. But for now, understand that stage plays were, from the very beginning, religious acts of worship. The ancient Greeks did not invent this form of entertainment out of whole cloth. All religious worship, since the beginning of organized religious religious worship anyway, all worship had been in the form of some sort of play. Ancient worship did not involve much, if any, quote-unquote, preaching. Instead, it was more often a public representation, a representation of past events, such as the creation of the world or the creation of man, as well as opportunities to engage in sacrifice. Think back, for example, on that scene in the Odyssey, which I covered in the eighth episode of this second series, that scene in which Telemachus arrives by ship at the realm of Nestor, the still-living hero of the Trojan War. Nestor is at that moment orchestrating the worship of thousands of people and sacrificing bulls to the gods. Now, such sacrifices would have required numerous roles, that is, that of some sort of leader or high priest overseeing it all, as well as men and women to bring the offering to the altars, and someone to wield the axe and the, or the blade to kill the animal, others to dress and butchers and to butcher it and to put the, to butcher the meat, others to put it on the fire and so on. There would have been another one to recite something pseudo-scriptural about the gods or about some divine event. These roles were not assigned randomly, but with significance, and there was prestige to being offered in accepting these roles. The same would go for other religious rites in which the doctrines of the religions were demonstrated rather than preached through representations of moments in religious and cultural history. Most of the plays from this era in Greek history are about mythological events, and the action of the plays is how ancient religions preach their doctrines by providing visible examples of the benefits in obeying the gods and the doom incurred by disobeying the gods. Now, sometimes people learn that the Athenian state funded the writing and performance of plays, and they see this as evidence of some sort of progressive mindset among the politicians of the time, that men like Pericles were interested in supporting the arts or something. They could not be more wrong. The state actually funded the theater because of its religious association, not in spite of it. The theater was a medium through which they could support traditional religion. Sadly, Though we know that the Greek theater existed long before the 5th century BC, we do not possess much evidence of it. What we do have are the extant copies of several dozen plays from the 5th and 4th centuries BC. These plays, though, are not the crude first examples of a nascent art form, never before practiced. No, they are obviously the surviving relics of a long-standing tradition of performance art, of a religious custom that has its roots sometime long before. Nevertheless, we do know that the theater became somewhat 
separate from strictly religious usage, somewhat secularized, we might say, in the centuries prior to this. For instance, it is known that the works of Homer were presented on stage during the early classical period. At the same time, though, it should be remembered that the Iliad and the Odyssey were not at all secular, really, and essentially became a sort of scripture for the ancient Greeks. But anyway, we read in Aristotle that sometime around 532 BC, a man named Thespis won acclaim in Athens as an actor and apparently as a writer or composer of at least parts of a play. Today, we sometimes call actors thespians after this man, Thespis. Now, at that time, Greek theater was essentially divided into three major categories, tragedy, comedy, and satire plays. Uh, we're mostly going to be talking about tragedy, to tragedy today. And tragedy, particularly during the 5th century BC in Athens, was probably the primary form of dramatic production. You might be tempted yourself to describe tragedy simply as stories with sad endings. This is not inaccurate, but it does not really do justice to the genre. Aristotle, in Poetics, which is his work about Greek literature and the drama, Aristotle describes tragedy as a story form in which the audience together experiences catharsis, in which the listening crowd undergoes a purification of the passions. The group aspect of this might be hard for us to imagine today when we so often view films and plays and other visual art via our phones or laptops in the privacy of our own homes, alone or with a small circle of friends or family. It might be hard to imagine a crowd and an emotional communion during the presentation of a dramatic event or of dramatic art. But this is exactly what our very recent ancestors experienced when they went to Christian liturgies. And it's what Pentecostal Christians, who erupt into the speaking of tongues and the wild dancing and singing, it's what they recreate in their own rituals. Now, if you've been to any kind of high Christian ritual at Easter or Christmas in the Catholic or the Orthodox Church, then you have experienced at least a taste of what the ancient Greek audience experienced when watching plays like, say, Oedipus Rex, which I briefly described in the 10th episode of this series, or a play like Agamemnon by Aeschylus. The audience participated in the events described there, such as the slaying of a king or the suffering of a god. They, they emotionally participated in this, and they experienced the deep emotions provoked by these scenes. Just like today, many times you read a book or watch a movie and you quickly forget about it, but every once in a while, a film moves you to tears, or you suddenly set down a book and lose your place in it as you are carried away by the profound thoughts that it sets loose in your mind. That's what the Greek audience experienced, or was meant to experience, when it gathered to see one of these plays. Now, comedies, on the other hand, would possibly be defined today as dramas which make you laugh. Again, not wrong, but there's more to it than that. A comedy could also be defined as a story with a happy ending. As someone once described the distinction, a tragedy ends in a funeral and a comedy ends with a wedding. Recall that Dante's great literary work is called The Divine Comedy, not because it's ha-ha funny, but because it has a happy ending with the main character alive and well and, and viewing heaven. Still, though, many Greek comedies were also raunchy affairs with lots of lowbrow humor and sexual innuendo. The raunchiest stuff, though, was saved for the satire plays, which apparently featured characters in sexually provocative dress, such as satires with huge fake phalluses. Satires in myth were boisterous and endlessly horny and prone to reckless comedic actions. More than just presenting amoral behavior, though, there was apparently a real importance to the satire play. 
During this time period, the satire play was considered a necessary component of dramatic productions, which usually took place during festivals, and these festivals usually pre presented three tragedies together in a trilogy, which with a usually connected storyline or at least related themes, and then ended the series with a satire play. It's as, it's as if the satire play was required in order to help break the emotional tension caused by the series of tragedies. Again, this should not seem so odd. Christian religious festivals of more recent times also do not simply dwell on the suffering and crucifixion of Christ. The Mass itself ends with the dramatic representation, the representation of Christ's resurrection, and the feast days of the Church are just that, feasts in which the tension of fasting and suffering are broken by the delight in an abundance of food and drink. All religions seem to have the same need for this emotional journey, one that moves through some sort of emotional darkness and ends with something that breaks the tension, whether it be something uplifting or something simply silly to help you return to the mundane world. There is, however, really only a little evidence to support this theory entirely. While many comedies and tragedies have survived, only one satire play is known to have survived the ages. This would be the play, the play known as Cyclops by Euripides. We'll come to that in a future episode. Now, these plays appear to have developed out of hymns that were sung during tr traditional religious processions. These hymns are known as dithyrams, and they were sung during the Dionysia, a winter festival that was held in Athens in honor of Dionysius. Remember that Dionysius had become an increasingly important focus of religious worship, particularly for the Athenians who witnessed the rites of his mystery religion at Eleusis. Now, it was apparently this Thespis who was responsible for introducing the idea of a character into the presentation, a lone individual, as opposed to just a chorus that would have typically done all the singing during the hymns. And this is a really important stage in the evolution of drama, and it should not be overlooked. The idea that someone would come on stage and represent someone else, and not simply speak as himself, as himself, for example, in praising a god or simply speaking about an ancient event such as the Trojan War. Instead, now a man was coming on stage and purporting to be a hero or a demigod, and the crowd was playing along with the idea, suspending disbelief, engaging in the fiction. I believe that this evolution here is really way more important than any of the others that I will discuss later because this is the crucial one, the critical step in developing any sort of drama. And without this step, it is impossible for a culture really to produce fiction. Just think, prior to this step, people gathered to praise their gods in song, yes, but at some point, the idea came to someone to actually represent a figure from mythology and to speak as if they were that figure. Now, it's impossible to know if this idea really originates with the Greeks. It may be that more ancient cultures made this transition, but it is with the Greeks that we have the first evidence of acting. Without this development, we would not have the great fiction tradition which we have today, in which billions of people around the world read books or watch videos which they know are false. They know that the story itself is fictional, in fact, but they allow themselves to be moved nonetheless to undergo the same catharsis that the Greeks experienced when they gathered to watch their great tragedies. Anyway, these plays took place at festivals. Early on, if not the very beginning, these plays, all of which were either tragedies or satire plays as far as we can tell, these plays were set in contest with one another, in literary battle, really. Because I, as I have already established, the ancient Greeks, especially the Athenians, were extremely competitive in, and ambitious in politics, at war, and in the arts. 
And this makes sense. Since all Athenian men were part-time soldiers, then all of the Athenian playwrights from this period would have actually spent a good part of their lives in actual combat. When they weren't at war, at sea, or on the battleground, they went to war on the stage. So in the early 5th century BC, before and after the Persian War, a young Athenian man would further develop and revolutionize Greek theater when he wasn't busy fighting off the Persian invaders. His name was Aeschylus. Aeschylus was born in Eleusis, the Athenian town in which the rites of the great Eleusinian mystery religion were held. You may recall from earlier episodes how the Greek religion, whatever it may have been like prior to the Classical Age, now included special rites dedicated to Demeter and her daughter Persephone, and later dedicated also to Dionysius, whose story eventually became entangled with that of the sacred mother and her daughter, and who also returned from death to life. Now, Aeschylus was probably born around the year 525 BC. This means he would have grown up during the time when Cleisthenes gained supremacy over Athens and instituted his reforms. Aeschylus also most likely came from a wealthy family, but we can't be sure just how wealthy. Around 500 BC, the young Aeschylus reportedly had a dream encounter with the god Dionysius, and upon waking, he began to write his first play. His playwriting career was interrupted, however, in 490 BC when he went off to fight in the Battle of Marathon. His older brother was one of the men killed at the end of this battle when he and other Greeks tried to capture the Persian ships that were fleeing the beach. Now, several years after the battle, Aeschylus won his first theatrical victory, but he had to lay down the pen or the quill or whatever and take up the sword again to fight in the battles of Salamis, and he probably fought at Plataea as well. Now, we do well to take note of this background with almost all of the men in our study of Greek history. They were all warriors. Whether we remember them as soldiers, as poets, as politicians, or as philosophers, or something else, they were all men who had been blooded. They were all men who, often multiple times in their lives, had donned armor and gone off to kill or be killed. And then, God willing, they returned to their lives and their careers, unless perhaps they were full-time soldiers such as Chemon. In his lifetime, Aeschylus appears to have written and produced at least 70 plays, probably more. Of all those, only seven have survived the ages, and only one of the trilogies remains intact. Remember that he would have primarily written trilogies to present at these festivals, trilogies along with the satire plays that ended each trilogy. Like many Athenians, during the course of his life, Aeschylus was initiated into the cult of the temple at Eleusis. And apparently, during the course of one of the plays that he wrote subsequent to this, one of the characters made reference to the secret and mysterious rites held there. Now, said play does not exist anymore, and we have no idea exactly what was revealed, but it was so touchy a subject that, reportedly, the crowd threatened him and tried to stone him to death. The veracity of this count is not clear, though, and we do not have a time for it or even any more details regarding the matter. Now, as I've said before, I don't want to become a note. Uh, option for any of these plays uh, or any of the texts that I include in my podcast, so I'm not going to summarize all of Aeschylus's plays. Instead, I encourage each of my listeners to read the plays of Aeschylus on their own and, whenever possible, actually see one of them performed. I am not aware of any venue that puts on Greek plays, but I know that it has been done in modern times here and there. 
Still, I do want to take the opportunity to point out some of the most important details in some of these plays, especially with regard to how they reflect or impact ancient Greek culture. I'll begin with Agamemnon, the first play in Aeschylus' only surviving trilogy. It's actually one of his later plays, but I begin with it for, because it demonstrates a couple very typical aspects of ancient Greek plays. First, as previously stated, it's part of a, tr a trilogy that's still intact today, exemplifying the way that plays were often presented in classical Athens in the 5th century. Secondly, its subject is essentially mythological, but also political and reflecting contemporary thought. That is to say that the deeds and the events of mythological or at least semi-legendary times are presented in the play, but the characters espouse ideas that are really those of contemporary Athenians. Now, the basics. <clears throat> Agamemnon is a play about the return of that ancient Greek king to his capital in Mycenae, which was the capital of Argos, after the end of the Trojan War. As I stated in a previous episode, Agamemnon is a classic casualty of the post-Trojan War era. Many Greek heroes departed the ruins of Troy as celebrating conquerors, only to suffer tragedy in the wake of that victory, like Odysseus enduring years of exile, or Ajax swallowed by the waves after a shipwreck. In Agamemnon's case, his betrayal was sexual as well as political, his wife cuckolded him during, while he was gone and then conspired with his cousin, who had become her lover during her husband's long absence, to murder the king upon his return and then seize power. His son would later avenge his father's death by murdering both his mother and her lover. That's the gist of the story as brought down to us by mythology. Now, in the trilogy of plays by Aeschylus about this matter, it's, it, the whole thing is called the Oresteia because it's ultimately more about Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, than it is about Agamemnon. In this series, we learn about the curse of the Atreides family. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's probably because it's also the name of the noble family in the great science fiction epic Dune by Frank Her Herbert, uh, which has been made into a series of films. The main character in those books is named Paul Atreides because his family claims descent from Agamemnon. Now, as the play opens, the people of Argos learn that the war at Troy has been won when a series of beacon fires brings them the news. This is an interesting example, by the way, of ancient communications technology. Though horses and ships might have delayed the news for weeks or even months, mountaintop signal fires can bring news literally at the speed of light. The, but the messages they sent probably could not have been very complex. Anyway, the imagery used at the beginning of the play, especially regarding the sailing of the ships that landed in Troy, it's, it's quite striking. This play was produced, after all, in the decades after the Persian War, at the end of which another armada of Greek ships set sail and eventually made an amphibious landing on the shores of Anatolia. One can only imagine the emotions of the, of the play's audience as it watched. There were certainly veterans of the war among the audience members, and now here they were watching their sainted ancestors return home from another war against Asian powers. Perhaps they saw the Iliad not as an account of the Trojan War, but really as an account maybe of something like the First Persian War, right, where their own experiences were just a redux of that same adventure. Now, I have briefly discussed how Greek plays were presented in a previous episode. 
the most pertinent thing to remember at this juncture is that the plays were not as dynamic as modern plays and films, not even as dynamic as a Shakespearean play with which you might be more familiar. A Shakespearean play will sometimes contain dozens of characters in multiple settings. In a play of classical Greece, there were at most usually just a handful of characters, sometimes only two or three. It was Aeschylus himself who introduced the idea of the second character, and it was revolutionary when one of his contemporaries introduced the idea of a third character. Aeschylus would embrace such transformations of the stage and himself begin to use more characters over time. Furthermore, there was typically at the beginning when they were just dithyrams and hymns being sung, there was only one setting, and the Greek plays would eventually begin to transform and begin to change settings somewhat, although never nearly as much as, say, a Shakespeare or a Ben Jonson would. Now, even so, much of the dialogue of the play, even during the classical heyday of theater, much of the dialogue comes from the chorus, a group of speakers or singers who were probably the original and only character of the original dithyrams, those hymns sung to Dionysius and the fest festivals dedicated to that god. So here at the beginning of the first play of the trilogy, the chorus reminds us of the sad saga of Iphigenia. When the Greek fleet found itself unable, for one reason or another, to sail to Troy, they learned from their prophet Calchas that they had offended the goddess Artemis and that there was only one way to placate her, to make a human sacrifice of Iphigenia, the eldest virgin daughter of Agamemnon. Here there is a brief but poignant recounting of Iphigenia's piteous cries, Father, Father, before being hauled away to the sacrificial altar, her saffron robes falling away from her tender young body as she goes to the knife. Again, these scenes and others presented to the changing culture of the Athenians make me wonder how much regret or disdain the audiences might have felt for previous incarnations of their own traditional religion, whose practices by this time had evolved into the Dionysian rites, which had become much more personal expressions of interior soul-searching rather than national expressions of aggressive solidarity. Also, as an aside, Bible readers might find this story somehow familiar. There is a somewhat similar and sad story in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, when an Israelite warrior and leader named Jephthah sacrifices his own daughter after winning a battle, having promised to sacrifice whatever he first saw upon his return home if God granted him victory. I should note, though, that uh, as with so many other Greek myths and histories, there are alternate versions of the sacrifice of Agamemnon's daughter. In this play, Iphigenia was truly sacrificed, murdered, really, by her, her father and his soldiers. In other plays that we will look at in future episodes by other poets and other playwrights, we will learn of an alternate tradition in which Iphigenia is not sacrificed, or she only appears to be sacrificed, and she goes on to have remarkable adventures with other mythological figures. Now, moving on, the chorus of the play gives way to Clytemnestra, the wife of Agamemnon, queen of Argos and mother of the sacrificed Iphigenia. Now, this is fine foreshadowing, the mother appearing just moments after the recounting of the brutal sacrifice of her daughter so that her husband and king might prosper in battle. Truly, the, sta the stage is set for revenge. Clytemnestra speaks at length here. She speaks sympathetically of the sufferings that the Trojans must have endured after a long siege and then the bloody massacre that must have followed when the Greeks breached the walls and left the city as dead as its men, women, and children whose corpses lay in the ruins. 
Again, for me, it's fascinating to see this capacity for sympathy, for understanding of the plight of an enemy when so much of what we have heard in earlier literature seems so unthinkingly judgmental and bloodthirsty. The concern expressed for mortal enemies in these plays, the capacity for seeing the struggles and the suffering of others, even those whom we dislike, is something that even now is not so easy for us, though we may consider ourselves, rightly or wrongly, somehow morally superior to our ancestors. Now, eventually a herald ent enters the play, and after invoking the twelve gods, he announces the return of Agamemnon, the great king, the herald also re recites a litany of woes that affected the Greek soldiers at Troy, and this is another common tool of the Greek playwrights, this recitation of past events and suffering. Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife and queen, resumes the stage and pronounces her great love for her returning husband. Tell him, she says, he will find a true wife waiting when he comes, one that has broken no seal, nor known delight in another's arms. Now, the audience of such a play would have already been aware of the ending. That is something important that distinguishes these ancient Greek theatrical works from something original produced today. The audience already knows the mythology, already knows what Clytemnestra is planning. So in a way, much of this dialogue is intended to make the audience cringe a little, to groan a little. They know that Clytemnestra is a liar, that she's been unfaithful with her lover Aegisthes, and that they are planning on killing Agamemnon. When Agamemnon finally appears on stage, he does so with his entourage and with Cassandra, a, traptured Tro a captured Trojan woman, who's also his slave-slash-concubine, whom he's brought back from the war. All are seated in chariots. And after the king speaks of his loudly of his bloody feats at Troy and name-drops Odysseus, his wife responds with a long speech about her weeping and her suffering while she waited for him to return. Clytemnestra tells her ladies-in-waiting to throw down their purple garments before Agamemnon as a carpet, because such a great man and king should not let his feet touch the ground. Agamemnon impatiently replies, Woman, me not! And he tells her to stop groveling before him. It would be overly proud for him to behave in such a way, he says. It would tempt the gods and it would upset the people, but she convinces him to do it. Have thine own way! Agamemnon grumbles before he descends from his chariot onto the purples strewn before him. After some more poetic bickering between the married couple, Agamemnon enters his palace and Clytemnestra follows him, leaving the chorus and the slave girl Cassandra on the stage. Now, it's important to remember there's not a lot of action in any of these plays. Recall the story of Oedipus, which I related in the 10th episode of this series that introduced us to classical Greece. In the myth of Oedipus, <clears throat> after realizing that she has mistakenly married and bred with her own son, Jocasta kills herself. <clears throat> in Oedipus Rex, the play by Sophocles about this event, Jocasta's suicide happens offstage. In the same way, Oedipus tearing out his eyes also happens offstage. So we only hear about dramatic and or violent events through the characters on stage. We generally do not witness these things. There's no faux combat or any disruptive events that appear before the audience, with a few exceptions. Now, this method of keeping the violence off stage holds true here as well. We hear prophecy of Agamemnon's death before Cassandra also enters the palace, but Clytemnestra actually kills her husband out of sight. So at one juncture, the curtains open on the scene of Clytemnestra standing over the body of her husband and over the body of Cassandra as well. She exults in this victory of justice, though the chorus is shocked at her words and calls her an inhuman monster. 
There is little description in the surviving text of the plays, but it must have been a bloody scene, possibly with Clytemnestra holding a bloody knife in one hand. She was probably also visibly covered in blood, since she states to the listening crowd that she <clears throat> stabbed her husband three times, and here's it is in quotes, then he lay still and gasped away his life, and breathing forth a stinging blast of blood, spattered me with a shower of gory dew. Clytemnestra now reveals the justice in her act. It was vengeance for her beloved daughter Iphigenia. There is much more to the play, much poetry, much verbal imagery, and the drama of Aegisthes entering the stage and arguing his own case, and the chorus predicting the revenge of Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, who was not present when the regicide took place. But instead of summarizing the whole play, I, I encourage you to read it and enjoy this play yourself. If possible, viewing the play would be ideal. Here, in terms of our Western traditions, though, I wanted to simply point out the parts of the play that resonate so strongly with some of our contemporary perspectives. I, I think of moments such as when Agamemnon returns from the war and he fills the stage with his chariots and his entourage, and I have to wonder what that felt like to the veterans watching the play. And then there's the poignant description of Iphigenia going off to be sacrificed, those saffron robes falling away from her youthful body. And the thrill of the moment when Clytemnestra, a woman, glories in her murder, bespattered with blood, standing on the stage over her dead husband. And we must remember how revolutionary all of this was. By the time that Aeschylus produced this play in 458 BC, theater was still in its infancy. It was still just beginning to embrace many alterations to the formal old dithyrams which they had, with which they had celebrated their Dionysian rites in the previous century. Aeschylus had introduced himself the idea of a second character in the play early in his career. The Agamemnon trilogy is from much later in his career, and he has himself adapted to the still-evolving world of playcraft. See how many characters, and how some of them quite dynamic, dynamic, that he has in his play. There's Agamemnon, and Clytemnestra, and Cassandra, and Aegisthus, in addition to the chorus, and a sundry number of messengers. And Aeschylus makes a woman his prime mover in this play. More interestingly, it's not like Aeschylus is himself a liberal or radical individual in any political sense. He is remembered as someone very conservative in his politics and very pious religiously. Let there be no mistake, the radicalism of Athenian politics in the classical age did not come anywhere near any idea of female emancipation. In the next episode, we will look at Pericles' funeral oration and how he describes the expectations for women in Athenian society. He was no feminist. Nevertheless, Aeschylus is not afraid to have a woman stand on stage and challenge basic Greek morals, justifying the murder of her husband, who was, after all, only following religious direction when he sacrificed their daughter. And again, when I read plays from classical Greece, I'm mostly struck by how like ourselves these characters are. They recall war and its accompanying tragedies with regret, not with jingoistic bombast. They appear to lament the rigid dictates of old religion. They have feelings and thoughts which all too often people today think that human society has just developed recently. No, as these plays show us, human thought and the approaches to politics and morality and religion have been complex and nuanced for a long, long time. Agamemnon is the first play of a trilogy, and the second play, 
uh, called uh, Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, he achieves his revenge and murders both his mother and her lover. The third play tells the story of the trial of Orestes for this crime in Athens. And in this, the goddess Athena appears and casts a deciding vote, breaking the juror's tie and saving the young man. The trilogy comes to an end with Athena's decree that all future trials must be handled in court. Thus, she brings divine justification for the political procedures of the contemporary Athenians, and we make a nice transition from legendary times to the mundane present. Much earlier in his career, in 472 BC, Aeschylus produced a play called The Persians. As you might expect, it was about the Persian War, specifically about the moment that the mother of Xerxes, who was king of Persia, the moment she learns of the great defeat at Salamis. Just the subject matter makes the play a little unusual. Most of the plays written during this time period, and especially those by Aeschylus, they typically dealt with mythical events of the far past. Indeed, this was the second play in a trilogy, and the other two plays which bookended the Persians were about mythical matters. The first appears to have been about an adventure of Jason and the Argonauts, but the other two plays in the trilogy have not survived the years. They were obviously not part of any sort of sequential trilogy like Agamemnon was. This play was funded in part by Pericles, the great Athenian statesman about whom you have already heard. He did not do so necessarily because he was a fan, but because that year he was the Korygos. The office of the Korygos was rotated among the elite of Athens, and the office holder was responsible for assisting with the finances of the plays, which also received direct state assistance, but often needed more funding to reach completion. Though the play is probably the closest thing to ancient Greek jingoism that we will cover in this podcast, it still does see things through the eyes of the enemy and commiserates to some extent with his suffering. Only to an extent, though. When you read this play yourself, remember that it was produced just seven years after the Battle of Salamis, and that most of the audience would have played some part in the long war against the Persians, or they certainly would have suffered during that war. Thus, the play does not hesitate to trumpet the valor of the Athenians. Early on in the play, in fact, a messenger brings news of the terrible defeat to Etosa, the mother of Xerxes. She is astounded, of course, recalling that such a large army went forth and was sure to destroy the Greeks. Regarding the fate of Athens, she asks the messenger, Is not the city sacked? Yes, replies the messenger, but her men, they live, and therefore her defense is sure. Even by 472 BC, the legend had become cemented in Athenian lore. The men of Athens had no need of city or fortifications. They themselves were the defense of Greece. Perhaps the most striking moment of the play comes when the ghost of Darius, the late king of Persia, rises from his tomb on stage. Atosa, his surviving wife and the mother of Xerxes, Atosa is forced to tell the ghost of her late husband about the tragedy that has befallen great Persia. The ghost of Darius laments all of this most dramatically and recalls prophecies that spoke of this failure. He also takes the time to tell the story of the origin of Persia, turning the play into a brief sort of history lesson for the audience and probably establishing the backstory. When those gathered on stage beg the phantom some guidance for the future, Darius's ghost tells them before anything else, wage no more wars against Hellas. Now, 
Hellas was a term that the Greeks of this time used to refer to all the lands of the Greeks. The term derived from the name of a man named Helen, with two L's, who was considered to be the ancestor of all Greeks. Helen had been one of the sons of Deucalion and Pyrrha, and they were the couple that survived the global flood as described in Greek myth. But getting back to the play, either recalling a prophecy or gifted with prophecy himself in the moment, Darius states that the army remaining in Europe will also be annihilated at the river Aesopus, and thus he makes reference to the Battle of Plataea that would follow the victory at Salamis. After Darius descends back into his tomb, Xerxes returns crestfallen from the war. Uh, the play culminates then as he and the chorus recite a litany of woes, recalling the names of good and great men lost in battles with the Greeks, until the grieving spirals into this final cacophony of sorrow as the chorus repeats over and over again, woe, 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 and Xerxes calls for all to beat their breasts and wail. Finally, I want to discuss Aeschylus' most controversial play, Prometheus Bound. Prometheus, you may remember, was the titan who gave fire and civilization to humans in one of the most ancient of Greek myths. It had not been the will of the gods to preserve and uplift humans this way, so Zeus condemned Prometheus to a gruesome fate, to be chained to a cliff face for eternity, and to suffer the predation of a great eagle, which would descend upon him every day and tear out his liver with its beak. Since Prometheus was immortal, his wound would slowly heal over the course of the day, and then the process would repeat the next day, the eagle descending upon him once again to tear open his abdomen. The play begins movingly with a scene in which Hephaestus, the god of the forge and of blacksmiths, weeps and laments as he reluctantly nails shut the shackles which chain Prometheus to a stark mountainside. He is goaded on by two divine figures named Kratos and Bia, which means strength and force in ancient Greek. And, and here's a very political opening, right? Brute strength and force are oppressing the hero of mankind. And then there's that opening. There are four characters on stage and no chorus. This is all pretty radical for the time. And then three characters leave the stage, and Prometheus is left alone, nailed in place, and he begins to perorate in his chains about the injustice of his fate and the justification of his rebellion. Here's a sample of the monologue. A god you behold in bondage and pain, the foe of Zeus, and one at enmity with all the deities that enter the tyrant's hall submissively. His fault? Too great a love of mankind. He, you see, he's both the defender of man and a rebel against tyranny. Moments later, the daughters of the ancient god of the sea, Oceanus, arrive on stage. They will end up acting as the traditional chorus for the duration of the play. Prometheus makes a striking exclamation to them. Look upon me! Look upon these chains that hold me fast to these high rocks, my dungeon and my tower of fate. Like many such plays, Prometheus Bound relates a great deal of myth and provides us with some of our only surviving examples of certain tales from Greek mythology. In this, it walks familiar ground for Greek plays, spending much of the time in dialogue, as the rest of such plays typically do. Now, late in the play, Io arrives on the scene. Io was the woman with whom Zeus fell in love and with whom an angry Hera later turned into a heifer. Presumably, she was portrayed by an actress wearing cow horns. 
Fleeing the persecuting insects that Hera sends after her, Io has now come by chance to where Prometheus suffers amid the desolation. Prometheus tells her story to the daughters of Oceanus, and in this way the play also functions as a way to relate and pass on the traditional mythology of Greece, because the story of Io is told again. Eventually, Io is driven from the stage, and she leaves it raving and stumbling off. The end of the play is quite shocking, though, for the time. Sensing that the earth beneath him is beginning to quake, Prometheus warns the chorus to flee, which they do not, and he cries aloud, See, O sea, earth, awful mother, and air that sheds the light which all used to see. See what bitter wrongs I suffer. And with that, the script describes that there is an earthquake and thunder, and Prometheus, along with the daughters of Oceanus, sink into the abyss. Now, as for the controversies regarding the play, for all his revolutionary approach approach to playwriting, Aeschylus has always been deemed to be a very pious Greek, showing great respect to the gods in his plays. And of course, since plays were state-funded and meant to support the native religion of the Greeks in a time of ongoing foreign conflict, this makes sense. But Prometheus Bound is anything but a pious play. The main character Prometheus, the titan who gave fire and civilization to man, he denounces Zeus pretty convincingly, painting him as a bloody tyrant, in language that we imagine must have been quite shocking to the audience. This public condemnation of the king of the gods seems like it might have been pretty offensive to the Greek audience. However, like so many other plays from this era, its companions in the trilogy have been lost. If, as suspected, Prometheus Bound is the first play in the series, the remaining plays may have shown Zeus to follow some sort of dynamic character arc and to relent from his overbearing insistence on doom and torture. And furthermore, we're only assuming that this portrayal of Zeus would have been seen as offensive. For all we know, the Greeks took it in stride, simply as part of their religion. Now, Robert Lamberton, though, he was a 20th century scholar of Hesiod, Lamberton writes that Prometheus and Greek culture was originally seen as a disreputable sort of trickster whose interfering with the plans of the Olympian gods led to the advent of Pandora's box and all the suffering of humanity that followed. This play, Prometheus Bound, I think, perhaps then could be seen as the revival and reform of an earlier legend about the titan Prometheus, turning him into a hero fit for the age of liberty that had come about in Athens. Given this radical retake on Greek mythology that the play might represent, then some have developed a second controversial opinion about the play. They suggest that this impious play was not written by Aeschylus at all, due not only to the seeming, its unseemly portrayal of Zeus, but also to some differences in grammar and vocabulary when compared to the other works of Aeschylus. Instead, these scholars think that Prometheus Bound was actually written by Euphorion, who was a son of Aeschylus and also a playwright. Since the date of the release of Prometheus Bound has never been fixed, some think it may have come out decades after Aeschylus died, and this remains a believable possibility. Whoever wrote the play, Prometheus Bound remains as a great work of the classical era in Greece. Not only are its themes provocative for any age, but its production is also challenging. Even today, the dramatic descent of Prometheus into the earth at the end of the play is an innovation that almost seems anachronistic when you read it, something that you wouldn't have expected to be able to be performed in an amphitheater in Athens. 
And in fact, this detail and others have led other scholars to suggest that the play was not even produced in Athens, but rather at the Greek colony of Syracuse in Sicily. Near the end of his life, Aeschylus had moved to the city and to the region known as Gela there, and it's believed that he continued working on his plays in that town. To support this idea that the play was produced in Sicily, they point out that the, the, the complete lack of references to Athens. Aeschylus was known for putting on plays that pointedly inspired the Athenians to be brave and virtuous, but there's no such theme in Prometheus Bound, though it is possible that such ideas were put forth in the remainder of the trilogy, which has been lost to time. Aeschylus is the earliest of the Greek playwrights of his time whose writings remain extant today. He was very much representative of the men of his time. He was what we would call today something of a Renaissance man, able to march to war or to sit and write poetry. Yet of all his work, he was most proud of defending his homeland and of the brotherhood of the soldiers with whom he had faced the Persians. On his gravestone, only the following words were written. Beneath this stone lies Aeschylus, son of Euphorion the Athenian, who perished in the wheat-bearing land of Gela. Of his noble prowess the grove of Marathon can speak, and the long-haired Persian knows it well. He makes no mention of his literary achievements, but only takes one last shot at the barbarians who had threatened his and his people's freedom. Perhaps it was fortunate that Aeschylus died when he did. In the 450s B.C., during his sons' lives, the work of Athenian theater would undergo significant developments and Greek playwrights would produce numerous plays of sterling quality, but his homeland would also be plunged into a dreadful, long war that would pit all Greek nations one against the other, and it would end with the subjugation of his beloved Athens, though he had fought much of his life to keep it free. I will get into that conflict beginning with the next podcast. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.